0: What will it take to create communities that are truly safe from gun violence and mass shootings? That is something that we've all been thinking about, especially in recent weeks, and something that we in Chicago have a right to know. And when it comes to our children, they are also paying attention, learning to advocate for themselves and their right to safety. Dion McGill is the Community Outreach Manager for Strengthening Chicago's Youth. That's a mentorship program from Lurie Children's Hospital. Hi, Dion. Welcome to Reset.
1: Uh, hi, thank you for having me.
0: Also joining us is Sarah Kanishnick. She's a member of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, and she's also running a new gun violence prevention initiative with the Lake County Prosecutor. Hi, Sarah. Welcome.
2: Hi, thank you. I'm really glad to be here. And hello, Dion.
1: Hello. Good Good to hear you.
0: Dion, what have you been hearing lately from the teens that you work with? Like, how, how are they feeling just seeing all of this violence in the news right now?
1: Man, um, you know, it's interesting. Recently, we just recently did a participatory action research project with a group of youth and um, a youth-led organization called Community United. And that research was specifically focused on um, mental health and trauma and boys and young men of color. Um, and we did a full research project, and it came down to recommendations, right, um, and some of the findings that were found. And, I mean, there's so much we can say, right, but we need to take better care, of ourselves, of our youth, of our adolescence, you know, of our city and communities that have been neglected for a long, long time. And that all came through, you know, in the words and the thoughts and the conversations with those youth, Wow. Um, many of which who live on the west side of the city, you know, and, and it's one of those things, just hearing your, your head nod, right? Yeah. We say west side, immediate things come to mind, and that's not good. And so that's something we need to um, discuss more. Yeah,
0: we need to address.
1: And address, yes.
0: Sarah, Moms Demand Action, that's a, an advocacy organization, but it's also a network of mothers. So what have you been hearing from parents about how they're talking about this with their kids?
2: Well, I've i have been involved with the gun violence prevention movement in many different capacities for five years. And what I'm struck by is there is a change um, since I started with Moms Demand Action seven years ago. There's a change. Um, what I'm hearing in reaction to Evaldi and the shootings in Irvine and Buffalo is a real understanding of how gun violence in communities uh, you know that are fully served or communities of privilege, uh, the kind of gun violence that happens in communities like Sandy Hook, um, you know, uh, that is intimately connected with the gun violence that's happening in communities that are underserved. Uh, and there's a, a much greater understanding of that uh, among the g- grassroots gun violence prevention movement than there was a few years ago. And I see that as great progress. And just, just in case there's anybody listening who's sort of puzzled by what I just said, uh, what a, a very key thing to understand about the gun violence crisis in our country is that we have to worry about firearms everywhere, no matter where we live, in our schools, in our shopping centers, in our uh, churches, in our places of worship, Specifically, because we have ignored the gun violence that's happening every day in communities uh, that, that um, are on the like the ones on the south and west side of Chicago. Uh, that when, when gun violence is high in those communities, the gun lobby is able to sell more firearms in communities of privilege because they base their marketing practices on fear and racism, yeah. and that is why moms and Suburban, downstate areas. No matter, no matter where they live, that is why moms, and dads, and grandparents have to worry when their children, you know, visit a neighbor's house whether or not that child is going to encounter um, an unsecured firearm. Right. So that you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the most obvious connection, but the connections go deep, and we all have to understand that gun violence is everyone's problem. And if you live in a community of privilege, uh, you are, are dealing with this problem specifically yeah. because we have failed to address the root causes that Dion just
0: described. That's the key there. It's everyone's problem. Dion, put your former teacher hat on. <laughs> what do you think they're feeling right now? Teachers everywhere.
1: Oh, I have tons of friends with you. Um, a friend posted something that I, I thought I've been thinking about all day. She said, um, I sit and think, do I risk my life to save my room full of adopted children? Or do I do everything I can to save my own life so I can go back home to the child I actually birthed and no teacher should have to come to that. What
0: a decision. To
1: that decision. Yeah. That's unacceptable. And let's be crystal clear. Okay. Can we like, just be honest, please? right? Just, you know, um, my heart breaks when this happens, right? I, I've done the, the drills that teachers do and had the discussion with the students. Mr. McGill, would you really give your life for me? Yeah. You know, and I'm a veteran, you know, I've, I've done that in, in different capacities through my life. Mm-hmm. However, Right. I want to sit here and say, yes, my heart goes out to all the families, and everyone impacted by this. Right. But that sounds too close to saying thoughts and prayers. And if there's any certainty that goes beyond this moment. Right. I am certain that thoughts and prayers do not prevent these events from happening. Right. Policy and change does. And those are the words that need to be on the tip of everyone's tongue when they're talking about texas as
0: you bring up those those drills that they do at schools i my heart broke again this morning Mm -hmm. uh, seeing i think it was a tweet from uh, a teacher or former teacher talking about what we don't hear with those drills Mm -hmm. and and that's the fact that when the student leaves the classroom to go say use the restroom if the if if there is an active shooter in the building right even as they practice during the drills the teacher cannot open the door for that student. They can bang. Yep. They can scream. Mm-hmm. They've got to stay out there. Yeah. And that's a decision that the teacher has to make.
1: I mean, just just sitting and thinking with that, right? Like the just the drills themselves, the emotional impact of that on children. You know, we hear that often from kids. They're scared. Children are scared to go to school, and parents are scared to send their children. Right. Yeah. And then you're put in a situation where you have to make a decision that, like that. It,
0: you're me, and you're you're a veteran, as you mentioned.
1: We the discussion in and of itself is a band aid to me, right? Because we're we're five steps deep in a problem that shouldn't exist. This is not happening in a majority of countries that look like America, right? This is a, you hear, you've heard it a lot this week, this is a uniquely American problem. So if Very we're talking so. about how we're keeping kids safe in the classroom by locking doors and having buzzers and all this, we're five steps deep past where we should be in the problem, right? That's how I think about it. And so we need to take steps back.
0: As a veteran though, you, I imagined, you've come across the weapons that are being used for these mass shootings, right? Typically the, that AR-15 style rifle. Should it be more difficult than it is for for the average person to get their hands on that?
1: Absolutely. Um in I spent 9 months in Afghanistan, you know, very comfortable and very used to using a variety of weapons. Um the military equivalent of that M4, right? It's that weapon exists and is used for a very particular reason. It's very effective at what it does. And so having that weapon in a city, urban setting, yeah. to me it just doesn't make tons of sense. Um And there are people way more intelligent than me, way more informed and way more educated who have had discussions about this. And um, we need to look at, you know, what the statistics and the data uh, can tell us and go from there.
0: Sarah, after uh, every mass shooting in this country, we tend to hear sort of the same opposing arguments for for the things that need to change. Right. What is it that you make of of the opinion from pro-gun advocates that we should just arm the teachers? Or we, all we need to do is install metal metal detectors. Someone said in Uvalde there should have been a fence. What do you think of that, Sarah?
2: I, I couldn't disagree more. Um, and the gun violence prevention movement in Illinois has repeatedly stood up to efforts um, uh, to pass a resolution uh, among the members of the Illinois State Board of Education. Um, every fall, the resolution comes before the board uh, that would allow the ISBE to support a legislation in Springfield that would allow school districts to arm their teachers. Uh, we have defeated it year after year after year and we will keep coming back until uh, for as long as we need to. Um, teachers, the vast majority of them, don't want this. Um, I, I think it's ridiculous. We already are basically putting in our teachers in situations where they have to experience PTSD because they have to make the kinds of decisions that Dion just agonizingly described a couple of moments ago about keeping a kid out of the room, right? Um, you know, this we are asking so much of our teachers, and and to ask them to carry firearms is is the most outrageous, ridiculous excuse. Uh, I have heard people from communities downstate say that. Uh, you know, well, there are rural areas where law enforcement can't get to a school, you know, quick enough the way they can in more densely populated urban areas. Therefore, we need to arm teachers. We absolutely do not. We already have a solution for that. Yeah. We have school resource officers uh, who should be, and and I hope in in most cases, if not, I hope in all cases, are properly trained in how to use those firearms. Um, that that's a when I hear that argument that we should arm teachers, for example, from Texas Governor um, Abbott, which I think that was his, um, included in his very first statement after the massacre in Uvalde, mm-hmm.
3: what,
2: what I hear when I hear a statement like that is we must create an opportunity for the gun lobby to sell even more guns. Because imagine, the, um, just, uh, they see dollar signs. When they, when they hear um, uh, an initiative like that, Um, If we armed every teacher in America or even every teacher in Illinois, think of the the way the profits would go up for those um, gun manufacturers and the people that enable them.
0: As a former teacher, Dion, I'm wondering your thoughts here. Would that have made you feel safe if you had a gun in the classroom? Do you think kids and and parents would feel safe if you were an armed teacher back then?
1: No, 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 no. Um, There's so... uh, I wish we had the time to really discuss this. This is one of those things I, I walk my friends through as a thought experiment. I'm
0: thinking of my kids' teachers and how many things they've had to ask me for to provide, to supply the classroom with art supplies, books, pencils. We, we can't give them that, but we can give them guns. We can,
1: and training, right? <laughs> and I always think just what happens if, let's say in this best case scenario, something goes wrong and a teacher shoots one of their students. We, we want to talk about mental health. Let's talk about that you know yeah let's talk about that it 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 makes no to me it makes no sense it's an argument that i just go what even as a veteran someone who's used weapons it just makes no sense to me as a teacher who was in middle school classrooms and high school classrooms i would never want that i would be offended if my employer asked that of me um and i yeah i just i couldn't do it
0: sarah weigh in on this mental health discussion, because we hear that argument over this over a focus on regulating guns, right? This idea that we just, we just need to get help for people struggling with mental health issues.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to weigh in on that. Um, it, it cannot be said often enough that the overwhelming majority of people who suffer from mental illness are victims of violent crime, not perpetrators. Now, that does not mean that we should not have uh, regulations and cultural norms in place, that um, lead to limitations on the people who are dealing with mental illness's ability to access firearms. Um, that is, is certainly one of the, the key things that, that we can do, and we have done something very profound and effective for that in Illinois. Uh, in 2019, we passed the firearm restraining order, uh, and it, what it does is it, it sometimes it's the type of law that's sometimes referred to as an extreme risk protection order. And what it does is it allows a family or household member or law enforcement to petition the court to temporarily remove a person's firearms if they are experiencing uh, mental illness or there's some other um, clear reason why they should not have access to that firearm. Again, it's just temporary and um, I couldn't be prouder that Illinois and the gun violence prevention grassroots movement worked together. Mm-hmm. Legislators in Illinois and the activists at the grassroots level worked together to get this bill passed. In fact, um, in the most recent session, money was appropriated by the Illinois General Assembly and um, the, the law itself. That included that funding was signed by Governor Pritzker, uh, giving um, support to a statewide educational awareness program about the firearm restraining order. Yeah. So we do have the tools that can keep us safe, but they don't really do any good unless people know that they're there. Um,
0: so, yeah, De- De- Dionne, I could go on. Yeah, but, well, <laughs> well Dion, Sarah brings up a good point. Talk more about the role that community level um, violence prevention programs play here.
1: Who rephrased the question?
0: What, what role do community level violence prevention programs play here? You can mix in your, your work with uh, Lurie Children's Hospital.
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, they play a huge part, right? Um, bringing community together, helping to bring resources to community. Um, at Sky, what we do is we try to bring just all stakeholders around violence prevention to the table to collaborate, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, to come up with better ideas and then to push. Right. Those in power and those who make those decisions to implement those good ideas, which I feel, you know, I feel like I would be remiss if I said that's a huge problem. Yeah. Right. Now. right? We're, we're, we know and I Sarah would I'm sure would agree with this. This is not a problem where we don't have solutions to solve, whether we're talking talking urban violence or violence in the mass shooting setting. What we have is a failure to implement, effectively implement or implement at all, the solutions that we know are effective.
0: So what do you have to say, Dion, to Republican lawmakers who resist making change and and take money from the NRA? <laughs>
1: um, you, you know, it's one of those things. I'm not even a basketball fan, right? But Steve Kerr kind of laid this out very effectively. That was
0: very passionate. Yes, yeah. but
1: he said 90 percent. And this is generally has been consistent for a number of years. 90% of Americans agree that we should have universal background checks, right? Um when I worked at the Illinois Council against handgun violence, um my boss used to say that all the time and she'd also say, you can't get ninety percent of Americans to agree which is better, apple or cherry pie. But if we can agree on that, why has it not happened? Mm-hmm. And I would ask any any lawmaker, right? R- regardless of partisanship, why has this not happened, right? The will of the people is being ignored. So why? And when you ask those questions, that's when you know we yeah. have to acknowledge the influence of the corporate gun lobby and all those things. But we just, we have solutions. We just need to make them happen.
2: I I have personal experience very recently with with that very issue. Uh, until just a couple of weeks ago, when I took on the role as chair of the Lake County State's Attorney's Office. Um, gun violence prevention initiative, Uh, immediately before that, I held the role as director of community engagement for Newtown Action Alliance. And I and and a nationwide um, network uh, sponsored by Newtown Action Alliance of activists uh, spent six months gathering all of the votes needed for a federal safe storage bill, H.R. 748, Ethan's Law. All of the votes in the U.S. House of Representatives, we have 215 votes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Normally, you would need 218 to pass a bill out of the U.S. House, but there have been a couple of deaths. Uh, So we have all of the votes needed, including a promise to vote yes on this safe storage bill by a Republican representative from New Jersey, Chris Smith. Uh, All of the votes are there, and we spent the last several weeks trying to convince House leadership to call this bill for a vote. Yeah. They are hesitant to do that because in an election year, they don't want uh, Democrats who are facing uh, stiff uh, reelection campaigns to have to vote on a gun bill. Now, that was the case up until Buffalo, Irvine, and Uvalde. Yeah. It is my great hope that this will uh, give House leadership, U.S. House leadership, the courage uh, to, to finally vote on that bill. It will pass the U.S. House of Representatives, and with the right level of urgency uh, it can also pass the senate Uh, but in answer to your question the reason so often policy change like this doesn't happen is because people in congress are and at all other levels of government are are afraid of losing their power that is the long and the short of it they don't want to give up their power to save kids uh, in any type of community, and until the people reality. are voted out of office, mm-hmm. this will never change.
0: We'll have to leave it there for now. Sarah Kneznic is uh, leading the new gun violence prevention initiative for the Lake County Prosecutor's Office, and Dion McGill is the community outreach manager for Strengthening Chicago's Youth. That's a mentorship program from Lurie Children's Hospital. Thank you both. Thank you. We talked about how some youth are feeling about gun violence and what violence prevention could look like. Now we want to talk about how youth can heal from harm already done and why they deserve restorative justice. But what is restorative justice and what does it look like in practice? Joining us now is Anna Durr. She's the Restorative Justice Coordinator for Southside Together Organizing for Power, or STOP. That's a nonprofit based in Woodlawn. Hi Anna, welcome to Reset. Hey, how you doing? Doing well, Thanks. thanks for joining. We're also joined by Ling Young. Ling is STOPS Youth Organizer. Hi, Ling.
4: Hello, how are you?
0: Doing well, thanks for joining us, Ling. You work with teens in uh, Woodlawn. So tell us, Ling, how have they reacted to the violence that's just all over the news?
4: Um, My young people are really um, impacted, but also are motivated to do more when it comes to the violence. We understand that the young people, um, the babies that died in Texas, um, is heartfelt and brought uh, the world to its knees. But at this point, Um, We need to understand that this happens all around the the United States. And it really is frequent in the city of Chicago where we have two-year-old babies that are dying from stray bullets and things of that nature. So my young people are really pushing to want to do more when it comes to uh, stopping violence.
0: Stop runs a social justice club at Hyde Park Academy High School. How does that club work, Ling?
4: The club is a uh, free for all when it comes to coming in. You could just walk into the room and you could be able to be a part of the club. Our club has a uh, sh- uh, a structure when it comes to being able to be in space. Um, you obtain all the skills you need to be an organizer, but also an orator when it comes to advocating for things that you want. My um, young people are really uh, passionate about wanting to push um, for campaigns that they are a constituency of, so we prioritize. Um, right now, our our headquarters is Hyde Park Academy, but we try to um, move around all the wood lines surrounding schools, so mm-hmm. that's Fisk, uh, Carnegie, um, and Woodlawn Elementary School, Bret Hart, um, and a lot more, just so we could be able to uh, facilitate space when all around. Um, it's really easy going and really youth-led.
0: I'm curious what the Social Justice Club members tell you about the mental health of their fellow students at Hyde Park Academy.
4: Um, that they're struggling like young people are really struggling due to the pandemic but also that uh the young people of this generation have been neglected um and not really taken care of when it comes to paying attention to mental health um everyone is so ready to get back to business when it comes to um restarting the world back from the pandemic but have not noticed that young people are suffering from the pandemic and not being able to Um, openly uh, be emotionally open when it comes to their emotions. So they're trying to really push focus towards um, mental health and uh, self-care and mental wellness.
0: Anna, for for the person listening right now who is completely new to the idea, can you Mm -hmm. tell us what restorative justice is?
4: Restorative justice is a practice that we all use to to hold safe space. So practically all it is is to be able to hold a safe space, um, be able to convey feelings, but also in an organized way. So uh, there is a practice where you have to go in a certain order. You cannot skip any orders. You cannot... Um, go any other way you have to go in the order of the circle where the way it's going and the way it is to you can have any circle for anything you can have a circle to solve problems you can have circles uh to address things you can have circles for accountability but the restorative circle and restorative justice in itself is a practice where you uh we promote and pump safe space mm-hmm. and uh pump being able to uh vocalize your feelings and mental wellness
0: yeah an alternative to um the traditional court system, it uh, it also encourages offenders to accept responsibility and, and yeah. to seek to repair harm, right? And, mm-hmm. and for victims to advocate for themselves.
4: Yeah, but that's only one, um, like, practice. Um, we're, we're sort of just is all around the board. So you can have an accountability circle, but you can also have a real fluent uh, feelings circle, where you just talk about your feelings, where you be able to come clean and confess and things of that nature. So that is just one practice, but receptive justice is many.
0: So, Anna, when there's been violence uh, among youth in Woodlawn, what's the first step that you take to, to help folks heal?
5: The first step take, taking the heal is meet with all parties, because um, you have to meet with all the parties in order to even get to the bottom of what has um, happen. First, we figure out what is the harm that has been done, and um, we ask them, like, both parties, whether they need to transform the harm that has been done. And we make sure that both parties want to meet together first before we, we come together and meet in a circle because circles are all volunteer. Like, we don't force anybody to be a part of the circle. Yeah. So we meet with both parties first before we go into circle and we just ask, um, like exactly what you said who who has been harmed, what are their needs and us as a community what can we do to move on for from it
0: ling it it seems like uh to stop all these things are actually related right you know affordable housing access to mental health care as well as reducing violence so can you talk a bit more about those connections
4: Yes, those are all related because they're all human rights and social justice um, things that, like, black people um, ask for and black and brown people um, deserve. So we try to um, add an equal line when it comes to being fluent, when it comes to knowing that this is a human rights issue, but also more of a civil rights issue with knowing that um, that these all link um, coincidentally housing. Um, if your housing isn't right, it can affect your mental health. If your mental health isn't right, it can affect the actions that you take when it comes to violence and when it comes to uh, the way you react to things, um, because they're all uh, chain reaction, chain link um, when it comes to our communities.
0: And the the uh, people who commit mass shootings, uh, we hear this all the time, that they're often lonely or uh, socially isolated. We're hearing it now with uh, the Uvalde shooting uh, in, in Texas. How can we reach out to kids who aren't as likely to show up at meetings or to put themselves out there?
5: You said Anna Orling. Anna. Okay, Anna. They, uh, so, like far as like when it comes to students, like um, normally what I've been doing is like I've just been showing up and and coming and being a part of a space. Like for example, like in my school, I go in a lunchroom and I just sit there and maybe just have candy and start, you know, offer candy, just have conversations with them. It's about like building relationships first and like breaking the ice that's allowed them to be able to want to talk to you.
0: Yeah. Did you have anything to add to that, Ling?
4: Yeah, of course. I think it's more of like we are the community components of school um, where uh, we as a community work with the school. But it's also a necessary take for that. The schools, the social workers, um, the counselors, the things that black and brown students are deprived of um, needs to be in the forefront of actually making sure young people are safe in school and also out of school Um Young people spend most of their days nine hours of the day and only uh forty eight and uh only are outside of school for forty eight hours of a, a regular school week and so uh if young people are really going through stuff and bringing it back into the school, we are considered um just secondary um when it comes to making sure young people are safe and uh, when it comes to we're more of that hey, come talk to me about anything, Um, in fact, where school is supposed to be that first branch first. We're in schools to make sure that um, young people and the counselors, teachers, social workers are being um, able to be held accountable, but also being able to have a safe space. Mm -hmm. So being in those spaces um, and just adding another cushion or supposed to add another cushion when it comes to uh, promoting safe space.
0: And what's your relationship with the police officers who are assigned to schools? like Hyde Park Academy.
4: I am one of the lead organizers that are um, pushing to get uh, cops out of CPS. We need more resources. We need more counselors. We need more books. Matter of fact, let's not say need we demand more counselors we demand more teachers we demand more social workers we demand more nurses we demand more young people are just used to having a good education not even a good education just an education we want our young black and brown people to have a great education and if that has to come to the expense of losing police officers to be an alternative to um policing and punishment um which is is the is the route we're willing to take the mayor Lori lightfoot and um the board of education is trying to cut down on a budget um where young people are barely having anything to begin with um woodline is facing a um a feat of 1.6 million dollars um and we just got money back from canceling out um the the uh police officer, mm-hmm. understanding that police officers in some people's ways promote safety, but to young people, to black and brown young people, uh, especially in the city of Chicago, that is not the same message that we all receive.
0: Just about 30 seconds here, uh give us some advice here for a young person who wants to start a social justice club at their school.
5: Some advice that I would give is really just just network, ne- networking, being, being um positive uh, follow, like following your passion. If you really have a passion, for so, uh, really just opening the social justice club, find others like magic, like you around, and just really uh, be a voice. Yeah.
0: Anna Durr is the restorative justice coordinator for Southside Together Organizing for Power, or STOP. That's a nonprofit based in Woodlawn. And Ling Young is STOP's youth organizer. Anna and Ling, thanks so much. Now, that devastation in Uvalde, Texas is also top of mind for many teachers. Rebecca Gamboa is a fifth grade teacher at Madison Elementary in West Suburban Lombard. WBEZ caught up with her to learn how she's processing the tragedy and how she's navigating it with her 11 year old students. Let's take a listen.
6: It was about five minutes before. Students were dismissed. My phone buzzed and I looked down and I saw the CNN notification, elementary school shooting. And immediately I was like, again? And then I got in the car. I was getting on 355 when they came on and announced the first update, which was 14 students. And I just, I was sitting at a red light and I just started sobbing because it is just devastating to hear that. As an elementary teacher, you, you can picture in your mind, I have 19 kids in my class. So today we always start with though, how are you feeling? Let's just open it up and talk. And I had a student who was like, well, I'm feeling really sad for Texas. There were a couple that were like, well, what happened in Texas? I kind of let the kids lead that discussion. Someone said, well, there was a school shooting and a lot of kids were killed. I had one student who I think was up a lot of the night looking online and researching because he he made the comment, like, don't research about school shooters. Like, to me, my, like, my heart broke. At 11 years old, you should be up at night, like, playing, I don't know, Among Us or Roblox. Someone brought up, well he walked into the school and they were like, well, would that happen here? And so we talked about, we have locked doors. We have like, we all carry walkie talkies. That's one of the reasons why we all have walkie talkies because we do drills. Like we practice. You are in a building full of adults who will do whatever it takes to keep you safe. And they were like, is it scary? And I was like, yeah, as a teacher, yeah, it's scary. I have a lot of response. That's a lot of responsibility. When I was talking with a representative in Washington, D.C., there was a college student who was about to graduate and be a teacher. And she brought up that for her generation, it's not a second thought that going into education, you might be risking your life. This is my 26th year. I never would have thought in college like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be a teacher and that means I might have to give up my life because I'm going to have to protect my students. I will do it in a heartbeat and I would not hesitate, but that wasn't in the forefront of my mind. And our college graduates now, that is something they consider. I, really have had a kind of a hard time myself processing. I'm one of the directors for the Illinois Education Association. I sit on the National Education Association Board of Directors. So I've talked with elected leaders about school safety and it's frustrating because I hear a lot of, we want to help, but don't see a lot of action I think that was what led to the, like, tears. I want to say that we're going to see things change going forward, but history has shown us that it doesn't change. So like trying to process through that and not give into the hopelessness, because if you give into the hopelessness, then you just are saying, we are thinking that this is acceptable, which it, it isn't acceptable. It's helped to, like, talk to colleagues. It has helped immensely to be around kids. They are very passionate about what they believe. And they've brought up, like, there needs to be laws to stop this. There needs to be people who say this is enough. So it also gives me hope.
0: That was 5th grade teacher Rebecca Gamboa reflecting on the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. WBEZ's Susie Ahn produced this feature. Still ahead, Reset architecture sleuth Dennis Rodkin takes us to the Ford Calumet Environmental Center on Chicago's southeast side. That's for the latest in our series, What's That Building? That's next on Reset. But first, here's Lisa Labas.
7: Hey, Sasha. So uh, another notable death to talk about today. Alan White, who was the drummer on John Lennon's Imagine and drummed for the band Yes!, For 50 years has passed away. He died at age 72 at his home in Seattle. Uh, The Yes uh, drummer's wife, Gigi, issuing a statement on his Facebook page. He died today. White was born in England in 1949 and began piano lessons at the age of 6, started playing drums at age 12, and was performing publicly since the age of 13. Uh, Gigi writing throughout the 60s. He played with bands including the Downbeats and the Gamblers. Alan joined Yes in 1972. The Palestinian Authority says its investigation into the shooting death of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Ekla proves she was deliberately killed by Israeli forces. Israel is likely to reject the findings as biased and unfounded. Abu Ekla was a veteran Palestinian-American reporter for Al Jazeera's Arabic service and was shot in the head on May 11th during an Israeli military raid in the occupied West Bank. Um, One official, uh, the Palestinian attorney general, saying that soldiers were aware journalists were in the area and that Abu Ekla was shot directly and deliberately as she tried to escape. It is 1244. You're listening to WBEZ.
2: The Supreme Court is set to rule on a Mississippi law banning abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Keep listening for the latest updates and analysis, as well as special live coverage when the court's decision is announced.
0: On 91.5 WBEZ,
2: I'm Scott Tong. The elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, is the 27th school shooting this year. We'll learn more about what happened and calls for action to prevent mass
7: shootings and gun violence in this country. That and the latest news from Ukraine and elsewhere next time on Here and Now. Two
0: hours of Here and Now, this afternoon from 1 to 3 on WBEZ.
7: WBEZ is supported by Steppenwolf Theater presenting Choir Boy, the story of a young gay black man and his battle between identity and community infused with acapella gospel hymns on stage June 16th through the 24th through July 24th, Steppenwolf.org. And by Ravinia with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer in Highland Park, including the Chicago Symphony, Sting, Sheryl Crow, and more. Pavilion and lawn tickets available at Ravinia.org. 73 degrees, going up to about 76 today. Good chance you'll see some rain throughout part of the day. This is WBEZ.
0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. On Chicago's southeast side, near Stony Island, you'll find a picturesque building standing in the 270-acre Big Marsh Park. Although the Ford Calumet Environmental Center is a reimagining of the area's forgotten post-industrial sites, the building looks like it's been a part of the landscape for a long time. So here to tell us more is our architecture sleuth, Dennis Rodkin. He joins us now for the latest in our series, What's That Building? Hey, Dennis.
3: Hi, Sasha. How are you?
0: Doing well. I miss you, Dennis. You're not here.
3: I know. I wish I could be there.
0: Was it something I said? No.
3: <laughs> no, I've got <laughs> to kidding. get the point.
0: <laughs> um, set the scene for us here in <laughs> on the southeast side. What does the center look like?
3: Well, you know, it's, it's a long, low, core 10 steel box. A lot of people know core 10 steel from... Downtown high-rises, it's brown and oxidizes to an orange. And then resting above it, uh, going in the opposite directions, are these wood tubes, giant uh, square wood tubes that rest across it. So what it looks like is something that might have been abandoned on that site when industry was leaving a lot of the other parcels on the southeast side. There are other uh, remnants that suggest this building— when you're wandering around through the the old re- relics of industry on the southeast side,
0: interesting. Uh, you say that in, in many Chicago parks, there there are buildings that make a statement about its surroundings, right? So, what statement would you say is the Calumet Environmental Center making about Big Marsh Park?
3: Well, I think it's interesting to if you think back over some of the grandeur in the park buildings that said we're a big bustling city, we're becoming a world capital. That sort of thing, this is something else. This one says we're healing the land. We this used to be an industrial site. Uh, Big Marsh itself was where industrial slag was left, was piled. Uh, this used to be an industrial site, and what we're doing now is we're fixing that. We're greening that. we're bringing back nature. Or what the architect of the building, Joe, or one of the architects of the building, Joe Valerio, said to me is, the past is meeting the future. That old industrial past is meeting this greener, more sustainable future.
0: Yeah. You know, the, the center opened last summer. It was a, a $7.8 million project. I mean, just looking at photos of it, Dennis, I mean, it, it definitely begs the question, like, who who designed this? Right. So tell us more about him and, and his vision.
3: Well, it's it's sort of interesting because an earlier version, many people know that an earlier version was designed Specifically, to appeal to people coming to watch the migrating birds that pass through the Lake Calumet area, really through our whole region on flyways. And that was designed by another architect and would really have looked like a giant bird nest, like sort of bramble that you, the humans, would walk inside. Uh, and then the vision changed to because there are more users of places like Big Marsh than were expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, Big Marsh became a bike park. And there are bike trails and and pump trails and things all through Big Marsh. Uh, And there also was this question of how do we sort of enshrine this story that goes forward um, from industrial waste to the greening of the area. And then there are a lot of people to talk about who've been a part of that story. So the vision of the building changed to something that was more of a community center, um, had less of that bird reference and more of the reference to the change to, to the industrial past of the area.
0: Oh, I see. So those windows were designed so that they're they're not harmful to, to the migrating birds?
3: You know, this is fascinating. I didn't know this until I talked to Joe Valerio, the the architect, and Stephen Bell, the director of the building. It's hard to tell, but fortunately in the photos that we've put online by and Jordan, he got a great shot that really shows it. Those big wood tubes... Mm-hmm. Um, You have to look way inside them, and unless you're about 12 feet tall, that's difficult to do. But there are glass panes in there. So, again, birds come through Big Marsh, Lake Calumet, all of our natural areas, and uh, if they saw windows, they'd see something transparent, and they would think they could just keep flying, and that's why big buildings are known for killing birds, is that birds hit them thinking there's nothing there. Right, right. So at Big Marsh, what they've done, those big wood tubes serve some sort of symbolic functions and that sort of thing, but they're also very practical. The glass is set so far inside those tubes that the glass is completely shadowed so that birds don't see something transparent and don't try to fly through it. So it's a way to, to keep from killing migrating birds.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. That is, That is genius. Um, talk more about the ways that the land at Big Marsh Park has just transformed over the years.
3: You know, it's interesting, Sasha, you know, of course, because we talk about it all the time. I ride my bike a lot. Yes. And I take my bike down to Big Marsh and I ride through Dead Stick Pond and Hegwish Marsh and Wolf Lake. And Big Marsh, as of about five years ago, started being redeveloped as a park and it's really been fascinating to see the change, because so what, so once again this was a place where industrial slag was piled. I wasn't riding my bike there then. You weren't allowed in. Okay. But as soon as it started, be, it started being uh, redesigned as a park. You started seeing uh, all the old junk trees were taken, and it's got a much more natural tree cover. Um, they have just this year they're finishing. Um, a path that goes all the way around the water that's in Big Marsh. So it's sort of a, a nice big bike trail you can wander through. Um, it's been amazing to see this change. And the change is not only happening at Big Marsh. It's happening at some of those other places I mentioned, Deadstick Pond and, and Hegwish Marsh. And immediately north of Big Marsh, there's Railroad Marsh. There's this, I think the last time you and I were on the air together, I, I referred to it as sort of a quilt um, there are industrial sites and there are green sites, and they're mm-hmm. all sort of patchwork or chest- checkerboard around the southeast, around this part of the southeast side. And what you're seeing is the park district primarily re-greening all of those. With as I said, taking out the junk trees. A couple weeks ago, there were volunteers pulling out um, old uh, 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 discarded tires and things out of mm-hmm. the water. And so gradually you're seeing it come back to feeling like a natural area.
0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are talking about the Ford Calumet Environmental Center for our series, What's That Building? Our trusty guide is Dennis Rodkin of Cranes Chicago Business. Dennis, so far we've talked about the exterior of the center and how it sort of fits into its surroundings in the park. But take us inside the building.
3: You know, one of the surprises is because, again, because outside you don't see many windows. Uh, the, the windows that you do see, not in those tubes, but down at ground level, are all sort of shadowed same way, so birds don't go in. So you might think when you go in that you're going to walk into sort of a cave, that it's all sort of closed off, but it's actually very daylit. It's all very subtle, the way they've mixed uh, protecting birds and bringing in natural light into the interior for humans. And you go in, There are community rooms, there are uh, restrooms, which is good because there's really nowhere else around um, this park. But the thing I love is the exhibitry, which was also designed by Valerio DeWalt Train, the the architecture firm. Mm -hmm. They designed the exhibitry, so there are so many stories to be told there because this was an incredible natural array before this area became settled by Europeans. Wow. Um, then it goes to this giant industrial buildup, and then there are these people who sort of help steer it. Uh, and and there also is this bike element down there, so you've got you've got to talk about some of the people who've been involved in that. But I think you can really see the story of Big Marsh through three people who are um, enshrined in this exhibitry. The first would be James Bowen, who in the 1860s was the head of the Calumet and Chicago Dock and Canal Company, which basically uh, was the company that said down there in that Lake Calumet area, let's just like wipe out the nature, do a lot of dredging, create this giant harbor, turn it into a center for industry. So that's sort of the beginning of the turn from the natural area that it had been. Then in the 80s, uh, uh, an environmental study professor from UIC, Jim Landing, is in there and other areas, he's a birder, and he's writing about how all these little niche spaces between the industrial areas should be saved, that there are these little bits of nature that have somehow just not fallen into somebody else's industrial plant uh, or come under somebody else's industrial plant, and how can these be saved? And then the next would be Marion Burns. Um, She was an environmentalist. She lived just a little bit north of Big Marsh, And when the CTA wanted to build a giant bus barn on a um, on a prairie outside her Jeffrey Manor neighborhood, she fought to have it preserved as natural land. It's not a piece of big marsh. It's now actually named for her, but it's it's part of this quilt, this checkerboard I was talking about. Yeah. So you see, you know, let's dredge, let's build, let's go industry. And all of these
0: stories are in that exhibit hall. Yes, inside and the building. all of
3: them sort of lead you through.
0: That's awesome. I know that you've got a quick update for us before you go, Dennis. Uh, last summer, you, you actually wrote about a group trying to save Kloss Restaurant from demolition. What's the latest?
3: Uh, they were not successful. Oh, Unfortunately, no. this is a great old Eastern European village built uh, as a restaurant. Really wonderful murals. And, and, of course, we have the story up from last July. This week, it's being demolished.
0: Oh, that's not the ending I was looking forward to, Dennis. <laughs> no. I, don't, I don't
3: think so. None of us were. We all sort of hoped that it, it would be saved and reused, but it, that's not going to happen.
0: Well, give us a, a little tease here. What what buildings are you looking into next? What can we expect?
3: You know what we have coming up is an underground railroad site in the western suburbs. Another We did one a couple of years ago. Now we're going to do another underground railroad site that also has sort of this fascinating artistic family that lived there.
0: Oh, wow. Well, I look forward to it. That is Crane's Chicago Business residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Thank you, Dennis. Thanks, Sasha. Now, you can read Dennis's story about the Ford Calumet Environmental Center at wbez.org. And if you have a building that you would like him to investigate, remember that you can always leave us a voicemail with details at 888-915-9945. Again, that's 888 915 nine nine four five something else you can leave us a voicemail on and I've been asking for this all hour here on reset but that's because we really do want to hear from you we could use your help for upcoming programming in light of the series of mass shootings that we've seen across the country I'm talking Buffalo Chicago Texas we've been reflecting on safety on our team and I want to extend that conversation to you because everyone in this country should have a right to feel safe where they live and where they work and where they go to school or their places of worship. But that feeling is harder and harder to come by. So we wanna hear from you, where do you feel most safe? Where don't you feel safe? How do you think that we can work together to create this society that prioritizes the safety of, of our citizens? We'd love to hear from you again. That voicemail number is 888 Tomorrow on the show, as grocery prices rise, food insecurity in Chicago is becoming a bigger problem. So we're going to talk solutions. Plus, we bring you the weekly news recap. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. I'll be off tomorrow, but WBEZ's Becky Vivi is going to have you covered in the host chair. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. We'll meet again soon.
7: It is 12.58. You're listening to 91.5 WBEZ. I'm Lisa Labes. Coming up next, it's here and now. Sasha just mentioned talking about food insecurity. And coming up on the program, a new National Geographic documentary entitled We Feed People showcases the work of World Central Kitchen. It tries to get meals to people in crisis situations around the world. We're going to hear more about that in 15 minutes. 12.58 WBEZ. How can we prevent future school shootings?
1: It's a fundamental question. Do we want to change?
3: Or is this acceptable to us? And we have to start being more honest with ourselves.
7: I'm Elsa Chang. What some researchers and even the Secret Service believe can be done to make schools safer. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon from 3 to 7 on WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ traffic is supported by Unbound, helping children and families in need. More at unbound.org. Cloudy skies, 70% chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day, a high near 76. More rain tonight, a low of 53. It's 1259.
6: This is WBEZ HD Chicago 91.5 FM, WBEQ HD Morris 90.7 FM, WBEK Kankakee 91.1 FM, W219 CD Elgin and on the WBEZ app.